Good morning and welcome. My name is Tim and I'm the lead pastor here and we're honored that you are here. Um, And just a couple of things. First is, thank you, Neil. Neil, you, um, I remember when you guys came, it was our second Sunday as Hydrant Church and you showed up because you saw a billboard and thought, well, that's a strange name. We need to see what that place is about. And, um, and I can remember sitting down with you guys at the high five in Mount Olive and saying, how can the church help you? And, and I think you spoke first and said, that's the wrong question, Pastor. It's how can we help the church and have been a part of this journey through, uh, through now almost six years and walked with us. And Neil has been a part of the advisory team that's now our elders and has been there when I'm not sure business decisions and been a guide and a friend through that. And I'm so grateful um, and because of the love that Neil and I share, I can point out the fact, the very funny thing he said that no one laughed at. He said, you're going to eat out and they're going to have gas. <laughs> As he talked about expenses. And I know that he didn't mean to connect those two, but that was really funny. Um, Hydrant is a wonderful place. It's a small church, and I love that. Because things like what we just saw with a high school student can happen. Not the mistakes. That's, we all are going to make mistakes. Nobody stands up in front of somebody and talks without making mistakes. But um, this is a place where people can try, can learn, can grow, can become. And it is remarkable uh, because it's not a place where somebody stands up on stage and they try and they make a mistake And everybody's shaking their head and wondering, why did they let her get up on stage? They cheer. You cheer. And it's amazing. It's remarkable. And it's something that doesn't happen in larger organizations. And it's that very kind of recognition that has caused us to do this thing we're doing called Rethink Small. You may have uh, seen it or heard about it. It has been... um, Last Monday, it was an article about you as Hydrant Church and about the conference, Rethink Small, was sent to the email inbox of every Wesleyan pastor in the denomination. And then it was posted on their Facebook page toward the end of the week, and I started getting calls from people in other denominations all around the country asking about Hydrant and about Rethink Small, about you and the things that you do like cheer for a teenager who's willing to get up and share the vision of her church. And it's her church, right? It's, she has that ownership. She can tell you, if she wasn't standing with a mic, there would have been no mistake in her being able to tell you about connecting and filling and overflowing because it's happening in her life. And it's just this remarkable thing. So as we do head to sabbatical, I'm in this, I'm in this conversation. We're in this conversation about... Uh, the book of Philippians. And I told you last week, but I'll tell you again, the reason we are in the book of Philippians as I head to sabbatical is that the, is the book is not a book. It's a letter. It's a letter from a pastor to his people. Paul is a, is a man who has loved God and cherished God and pursued God with everything that he has from probably the moment he was born. And he got off track. And Jesus stopped him in his tracks, literally knocked him down, blinded him, and got his attention, and retrained him in his faith. So in some ways, 
Paul didn't really experience a conversion, but he experienced this transformation where he realized what and who he had been worshiping all along and refocused that on Jesus as the Son of God. And this created a burden in him where he was once trying to eliminate Jesus' followers. He was doing everything, gave his entire life to the creation of Jesus' followers, to making disciples, to to people knowing and experiencing Christ, to people connecting and filling and overflowing. And he did it among the people who never heard of Jesus. He looked for the people and intentionally went to the people who were excluded, who were hated, who were said they didn't belong, and he invited them in. And this got him into trouble. He was constantly running for his life. And now as he had, he has preached this message that we call the gospel, this good news that the creator has not abandoned his creation, that he is redeeming it and restoring it and drawing everyone who is willing back into the kingdom. There are those with power who don't like this idea. There are those who yield the ability to control through violence and threat who don't like this idea of a kingdom come and peace on earth. And Paul is in jail. He is in jail awaiting awaiting trial to decide whether he is going to be executed or not. And while he's in jail, he decides he needs to write back to his, to his friends, to those he has loved and served alongside, and he writes back to the church in Philippi, perhaps his favorite church. He loves the people there in the church in Philippi. You can, you can see it. It oozes in every word he writes. But not only does that ooze, there's this joy. Dude's in jail, awaiting possibly his execution, and he is writing constantly about joy. We said last week that as he begins the letter, as he, he, you know, he goes through some of the normal things of writing a letter at that time, like who it's to, who it's from, and it identifies himself and what he's about. But then he, he launches into this prayer of thanksgiving for that partnership in ministry, partnership in the mission, people who have realized their life is about Christ, that their life is about the purpose and mission of that Good news being spread and more and more people finding their way into the kingdom of Jesus. And he's so grateful for the way that they have come together. And then he begins to kind of tell them a little bit about what he's going through and to connect. And really what he does is interpret his circumstances for them. Right? He's going through something terrible, scary, uncertain. And he doesn't want them to worry. Because he's not worried. In fact, he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. We sang things that, that really as much are a prayer in the hope that that would be one day what we could say about ourselves. We're laying down our lives. Everything for you. My hope is in you. And that's where Paul is. The source of his life, his identity, his purpose, his mission, the goal of his life is all Christ. And because he can say that, he recognizes that even to die is gain. But that what he wants most is not what he wants most. He may want most in and of himself 
to be with Christ in the fullest way possible, to die and be with him. But he wants even more whatever Jesus wants him to do. And he recognizes that people like the, the church in Philippi still need him. And so that he believes that he'll be delivered because of that. And he says at the end of chapter 1, he says these, whatever happens. Because he recognizes not only is he going through something, but the church in Philippi is dealing with some persecution as well. Some people who are coming against them. Some, some attacks from the outside. Some, some struggles from the inside. And he says, just whatever happens. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we preach this message about peace on earth. We preach this message about a kingdom in which the outsiders are insiders, the excluded are included, the marginalized are brought to the center, and everyone can have a place who is willing to proclaim Jesus is Lord. Everyone can have a place who is willing to receive that grace and that forgiveness and to embark on a mission that is devoted to Jesus instead of lust and power and accumulation. And when we, when we submit to him, we're brought in. And that is a message that is revolutionary. It's countercultural at every level. And his hope is that whatever happens, no matter how people come against him, no matter how people come against the, the church at Philippi, no matter what struggles they deal with, no matter what hurts happen, no matter what happens, his prayer and his instruction is to conduct your lives in a manner that is worthy of this good news, in a manner that reflects this good news, in a manner that reflects the message of Jesus in our actions. A message of forgiveness, a message of grace, a message of hope, a message that embraces the outside and lifts them up. We realize when we look at Jesus, this crazy thing, and that everyone matters. But he spends the most time with those who've been told they don't matter. Everyone matters to Jesus, but he spends most of his time and his energy with those who believe they don't. And he keeps inviting us in and to live worthy of this message. But he knows, he knows the challenge of this. He knows the difficulty of this. He knows that within us is a natural inclination to live for ourselves instead of Christ. He knows that within us it is this natural inclination to pursue our own ambitions and desires instead of those of Christ. He knows that within us is this inclination to preserve our own life and our own way of life at whatever cost and expense to ourselves or others. And he says that no matter what happens, instead of that, live. Live in a way worthy of the gospel. And because of the challenge, he keeps writing. He gives them some instruction, some, some, some justification for the way of life. And some instruction on what it looks like for them as a church. And so as we go into this season, um, when, when we will be separated from one another for a couple of months. Just eight weeks. Thank Jesus it's not eight months. Thankful it's more than eight days. Eight weeks sounds about right. And we'll, we'll, we, will, we are fully confident. Anita and I, that we will come back to a church that is healthier and stronger and even more beautiful than it was when we left. 
I have no doubt of that. But as I go, there are things like Paul is writing that I am hoping for the church. Things that I, I believe are possible. We talked last week about some of those perspectives. And as we, as we go into chapter 2, I think that there's something very significant that Paul is hoping and praying and instructing the church in Philippi about their life together that I would say, yeah, that's us too, Hydrant. That's what we need to do. So let's go. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go right into Philippians chapter 2 at verse 1. If you'd rather just listen, that's fine. That's how the original recipients of the letter would have received it. It would have come to the church and someone would have read it to everyone to hear. And then it would have been passed around to other churches because they believed there was value in it for people like us years later. So we're in Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. It says this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts Tender and compassionate. Now, if you're in the, the NIV or most other translations, you would say something like if. If there is any encouragement or if there's any comfort or any fellowship or partnership or joining together in the spirit. If your hearts are tender and compassionate, then he says, make me truly happy or make my joy complete by agreeing wholeheartedly with one another, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. And keeps writing, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Maybe yours says, do nothing out of, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests. But take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ had. He realizes that this instruction to, to, to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is difficult. It's countercultural. That we'll have a thousand reasons to do things our way instead of his. A thousand reasons why this, this gospel of peace, of forgiveness, of love, of hope, this gospel that calls us to not return violence for violence, wound for wound, that this gospel of loving neighbors and enemies is difficult. It goes against everything that is ingrained in us, and we're going to want to resist it. And so he begins by giving us some reasons. He says, if you have any encouragement, if you have any comfort, if you have any participation with the Spirit, any compassion and mercy. Now, if is one word in the English language, but when we were, if we were to look at this in Paul's words, you might translate that word if as because. And that's why if you rolled one of the Bibles from the chairs and, or read from the New Living Translation, it just leaves that word off. There's an implication of all that you have these things. That because you are in Christ, you have known what it is to be encouraged by Christ. You know what it is to discover a comfort from his love when you feel unlovable, when you failed, when you succeeded, when you dropped the ball. You have known what it is to be accepted and to, to participate, to partner in the spirit. This word fellowship, I know I make fun of it and I, and I hate it and I don't use it because it means nothing in our world anymore. It doesn't even mean anything in our churches. It means like we're going to get together and eat. 
Like, that's what we call it. We had some good fellowship, which means we had some barbecue, right? We had some barbecue, and we sat together in the church building or maybe in our homes. But fellowship, this word, this Greek word, this koinonia, it has much more to do with a connection to, to participation and partnership in a mission, It is about joining together with a single-minded purpose and hope and devotion. We're all going in the same direction after the same thing with the same focus and desire. We are partnered together with and in the Spirit of Jesus. We want and are after and have given our lives to the same thing Jesus did. Because you know what it is to partner with the Spirit to be empowered by the Spirit, to love when you'd rather not, to forgive when you'd rather not, to embrace when you'd rather not, to turn the other cheek when you'd rather not, to love when you would rather not, because you know the joy of giving and receiving, because you have participated in this grace, because you have compassion and mercy, both receiving and giving these things. Because of this, Paul says... Make my joy complete. Make me fully happy. He says, do it by agreeing wholeheartedly, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. What's he talking about? He's talking about unity. He's talking about unity. In fact, Jesus said that that this will be a mark, and this is what's his prayer for the church. Unity. Unity. There may be nothing that could bring more joy to me in coming back after eight weeks of sabbatical than hearing how unified the church has remained and how focused it has been in this season of the summer. And Paul recognized he can't be with them. And his hope above all things is that there would be unity among those who are participating in Christ, those who have experienced and been encouraged and, and known the love and comfort of Christ, that they would agree together wholeheartedly, love one another, and work together with one mind and one purpose. While I'm gone, remember why we're here. Remember why we're here. We're a five year old church. Tom Rayner, kind of this church health guru. He does this big podcast and conferences for the Southern Baptist Convention on revitalization and replanting. He says that every church five years and older needs revitalization. It needs new life pumped into it because we have this tendency, right? We have this tendency to turn inward. We have this, we have this tendency to turn inward and think it's about us and what we want and what we need. And our needs being met as opposed to the mission that he's called us to. To the vision that he has put before us. And it's easy to turn. Let me give you a great example. Your first time here. You walked out those doors or you heard whoever was on stage say, enjoy a homemade cookie on your way out. It was like pure joy. (laughs) Right? Like it was this surprise Beyond surprise, like, who does this? By your fifth, where's the cookies? Don't I get a cookie? What if they, if they, God forbid it was one of the Sundays we actually ran out, right? We have a tendency to shift. 
in five weeks or five years. And he knows that he's away and he's not there to protect that vision, protect that mission. And his desire is that they would be unified with single-minded purpose and vision to remember who they are. That they are those who are in Christ and that no matter what happens, they live their lives according to the way and the mission of Christ. So while I'm gone, remember who you are, unified together by a love for one another, a love for one another. Love is, love is way more this choice than mushy feelings. And when we choose to love one another, we choose to love those who hurt us, those who disappoint us, those who let us down, those who sing the songs we don't like or, 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 or whatever. We love because we love, not because of what they do or don't do. And so as we go into this summer, love one another well. Look for ways to love one another. Paul writes in another place, look for ways to outdo encouraging one another. I won't be here to protect that vision. I won't be here to look out on Sunday mornings for the person who needs encouragement or needs a word or to have that lunch or that coffee during the week. I need you. I need you to love one another. Protect one another. Care for one another during this time. And openly invite anyone in. We are united by a devotion to our mission. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I started writing the story of Hydrant, and, and last night I was writing, and I remembered the very first song we ever sang here, Your Kingdom Come. <laughs> Build your kingdom here. We proclaim from the very beginning, this is a place about the kingdom of God. It's about the kingdom of God erupting in our lives and in this place. It's about His will being done. It's about His reclaiming a community. It is about His love being poured out. It's about us refusing to waste our lives pursuing the things that don't really matter. It's about a mission. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Love God and love our neighbor to connect and fill and overflow. That's what binds us. There is this strange Unity created by the vision that we share together, that you and I believe in because we've experienced how it transforms our lives. Keep offering that to others. Let that unify you. Don't get distracted. Stay on mission. We're united by what we value here. And you have believed and valued those things. First, that this church belongs to Jesus. He's the center, the source, and he calls the shots. He calls the shots. I don't call the shots. I don't make decisions by myself. If I believe that God is asking us to do something, there's a whole slew of people that have to have that same spirit and agreement that this is what God is asking us to do before we do it. Because this church belongs to Jesus, not to me and not to you. That's why one of our partnership commitments, I'm not going to make the church about my preferences. It's always about knocking down the barriers and creating an environment for people to experience him. Keep creating that environment. Protect it. You know how much it's meant to you. It's his church. The second thing we value is that people matter most. It's not about the programs. 
It's not about getting what we want. It's not about this happening or that happening or whether or not we're going to do men's ministry, women's ministry, VBS, retreats, quilting group, or any of these other things. Right? It's about people experiencing Jesus. And when our focus gets narrowed to that, we do the things that help make that possible. Focus on one another. And we remember this. This really helps our unity. The Spirit does the fixing. Not you and not me. So we ask these questions, right? We have teenagers helping out in the office uh, throughout sabbatical. They've already started to show up as they're at school. And they've, they, they were laughing because we were having a conversation. Actually, this conversation happened at Surge. We're sitting out here at the picnic tables. I was sitting, talking with a couple of teenage girls, and, and we were talking about future. And we were talking about all the different things she wanted to do. I said, well, what's the real question? And the, and another, the other one said, what does Jesus want you to do? And we kept talking. She said, I don't know. I'm scared. That's the second question, she said. Do you have the courage to do it? She said, I don't know. She said, well, how can I help? <laughs> the three questions so ingrained in how we make disciples and stay unified. Because I'm not going to tell you how you need to live your life or what you need to do. I'll tell you what Scripture says and invite you to ask yourself this question, what is Jesus asking you to do? And I'll help you figure that out. And we teach each other. We learn in our life groups how to discern that, how to know when we're way off track. Being together, unified, is one of the ways we stay on track. By ourselves, we have an infinite ability to deceive ourselves, even about what we think Jesus is saying. Together, we protect it against that. And so that unity, as we bind and give each other room to figure out what God's asking. There are times I ask people, and I said, well, what, is, what do you think Jesus is asking you to do? They said, I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out. I said, okay, I've got your back. If I can help in any way, and when you figure it out, I'll be there to help in any way you need. If you have questions, I'm here. If you need scripture, if you need guidance, I'm here. But I'm not, I'm not going to tell them. It's not my job. Is. And last, one of the things that we value most is hope. We recognize that hope is greater and stronger and more wonderful than fear, especially as a motivator. We are not motivated by fear. We are not afraid of what might happen to our small church or to our people. We're not afraid. We have hope. We believe in what's possible. We believe in what God is doing. We hold on to hope for you, for your family, for your friends, for our community. And we act on hope, not on fear. And we are united by our hope. Hold on to hope. Always hold on to hope. I think that Paul recognized it as agreeing wholeheartedly, loving one another, and working together with one purpose. That they would be unified together. Not marching blindly following orders, but unified together in this love and service of Jesus and this bubbling up of the kingdom of God. Dean Fleming put it this way. He said, the church is not an army where everyone marches in step. Right? It's more like this philharmonic orchestra in which every member or partner uses his or her gifts, contributing toward the goal of creating a harmonious symphony. We, we contribute what we have and who we are to this 
orchestra that is creating this beautiful music that's drawing more and more people in to use their gifts to contribute, to be a part of something that's transforming. I met a girl this week. She said, well, what's the deal with that name? And um, I said, well, I, I started to tell her. And it was really funny. She sitting in the coffee shop. I tell her, she's like, you need like a mic to drop right now because that's awesome. But part of this idea, this idea of, of a hydrant, a place where people can connect and fill and overflow, there is something beautiful drawing people in to the possibility. And our unity is wonderful. And to be honest, it's a little scary. Like, it's unbelievable how united this group of people is around the, the, the love of Christ and this mission. And we don't always get it right. We don't always fail. But there's this peace that John talked about a couple of weeks ago quite a bit that makes the unity remain possible even when we don't get along or we step on each other's toes or accidentally crash into each other or purposely crash into each other. Forgiveness. Forgiveness keeps us united. And this is where he continues to give instructions. He, he writes, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your interests, but also the interest of others or the interest of others too. It is the most ridiculously countercultural message that you can imagine. Humility. Humility. Lowering ourselves. Even in this time, the word humility in Greek culture and Roman culture, it was connected with servants and servitude and belonging to someone else. And, and Paul takes this word and he transforms it and he helps us to see that we are not some kind of in, in some kind of forced service to others. We're not forced into service, but we are freely choosing to serve because that's what Jesus did. Because that's who Jesus was. And that's what he invites us to do, to imagine a place at a time where we think of others better than ourselves. We think of others first. We think of the interests of others. So we, we, we make this easier to read in most of our versions today. You probably read either from the, the New Living Translation or the NIV. And it said, don't look out only for your interests, but also the interests of others. In Paul's writing, there are a couple of things different in that sentence. First, the word only isn't there at all. Second, the word also is not there. The word rather is there. So when Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, he wrote this. Don't look out for your interests, but rather the interests of others. What? <laughs> so much for the, the psychology to tell you, you're not any good for anybody else until you're good for yourself. You take care of yourself first and only. And there's this remarkable reality in which in the family of Christ, Jesus invites us to take care of one another, believing and trusting that others will take care of us too. So that when we come together, it's not about what I want or what I think I need or deserve. It's about, it's about others. 
What do, what, do, what do those preschoolers back there need? What do those kids need? What do our, what do our students need? What do our guests need? What do, the, what do the people on the other side of the room need? I know I want this, that, or that, but what, do, what does it need? What do, what are the people who are lost in our community? Those who, who don't know Christ, those who are disconnected, those who have given up on church, those who have written off Christ. What do, what do they need? What would be in their best interest? This kind of humility that lets others go first. Jesus gave, uh, gave instructions as he was going into a banquet. And he watched everyone kind of jostling for the seat of honor. He says, you guys are nuts. Don't go for the highest seat, most important seat at the table. Choose the lowest. He says, then if you're in the right seat, you're in the right seat. And there's no embarrassment in being moved. But if you're in the wrong seat, there's only great honor and joy in being moved up. Recognize that the first should be last, the last first. The kingdom of God is this twisted, odd reality. At least it seems twisted and odd to us because we're so ingrained in a whole other way of living that it, that it takes this transformation. He realizes how hard it is. But he knows that if unity is possible, it begins with humility. More and more business leaders in our world today are recognizing that humility is one of the best leadership traits that any C-level leader, CEO, COO, CFO, any of them could possibly demonstrate. Humility. Humility builds connection. Humility lifts up. Humility empowers. Humility makes possible way more than anything that pride could accomplish. When we look out for the interests of others, when we lift others up, when we look for those who are hurting or new to encourage and embrace and bring into the family, we look for the interests of others. Paul, again, he knows how hard this is, so he gives us an example. And this is what Paul does almost everywhere. He uses Jesus as the example. He talks about marriage. He talks about marriage in Ephesians 5. And even when he's talking about marriage, he uses Jesus, the one who was never married in his life, as the example. His relationship with the church. How he related to the church. It's how married people are supposed to relate. It always goes back to Jesus. For Paul, for Paul, there was this one kind of fact that settles it all. Right? Jesus is the only person who ever, who ever predicted his death and resurrection and pulled it off. He claimed to be God. Well, until someone else, until someone else predicts their death and resurrection and pulls it off, Paul's got like, we're going to go with what Jesus said. We're going to go with what Jesus did. We're going to go with what Jesus did. He's the center. He's all of it. And Jesus said in his final instructions to his disciples, love people the way I did. So that's what he keeps using as the example. And he does that here in Philippians chapter 2. You can look back at your Bibles. 
See, he could have used lots of examples from Jesus' life. He could have talked about him being born in a barn or, 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 or being laid as a, in a feeding trough as a crib. He could have talked about his willingness to wait 30 years to begin to work. Or, or he could have talked about the time that he washed his disciples' feet. The master of all creation getting on his knees, wrapping a towel around him, and washing the nasty feet of his disciples. Instead, he chooses... The greatest act of humility and unity with humanity imaginable. He says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He didn't cling to his place in heaven, his place on the throne, his place high and above and separate. Instead, he gave up divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. We see that in the Gospels over and over again. I do what the Father asks. I only teach what the Father says. I only go where the Father says go. I only do what the Father says do. Even at the end of his life, when he'd rather do something different, he says, not what I want, but what you want, Father. And in his obedience to God, he died a criminal's death on a cross. And on that cross, he set the path forward for us. He opened the possibility of atonement. He opened the possibility of forgiveness. He opened up new life in this life and into eternity. He gave us the kingdom. And so God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this beautiful poem or, or song of Christ, he's giving us Christ as our example. Because we are in Christ, because we have received tenderness and compassion and love and comfort in Christ, we make Paul's complete, his joy complete. We make, we make the, our, we, we serve in unity and humility and Christ is our example. Christ is our example. Unity and humility, they bind us together and empower us to live lives worthy of the gospel. One of the interesting things throughout this book is that Paul uses this phrase, you all. You all. I mean, we would just say y'all, but he was Greek, not Southern. So there's this really remarkable reality connected to this. The comfort we feel, the love we feel, the encouragement we feel, the forgiveness we experience, the grace we experience, is experienced together. It's not about me and Jesus. It's about us and Him. It's about humanity and Him. It's about us being transformed. The encouragement we discover is from others. The love we experience of Christ is from others. The comfort we experience is from others. And so often we try to separate ourselves. We try to pull away. We try to do it on our own. Especially when we're hurting or afraid, when we're discouraged or need comfort. We pull away from the very places we can get it. It's just a remarkable thing, right? If you have been a follower of Jesus, a part of a church for very long, chances are you've been hurt. The craziest thing is the only place you're going to find healing for that hurt in the church. Jesus has a warped sense of humor. 
But he keeps calling us back together. Back together in unity and humility. And he tells us to work out our salvation. But not in our own efforts and abilities. We work out our salvation. And the very next sentence is, as God works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Humility and unity are not our first reactions. God works in us and we work it out in unity and humility, devotion to one another and to the mission that he's called us to. And finally, he gives one last word of guidance. Do everything without complaining or grumbling. Neil asked for a favor. This is mine. While I'm gone, do everything without complaining or grumbling. There won't be anybody here to fix it anyway. Right? Complain all you want when I get back. I'll be ready. I won't have heard one for eight weeks. It'd be the first time in my life I've gone eight weeks without hearing a complaint. And it's okay. That's what I'm here for. But the people who are leading, the volunteers who are serving, they can't fix it for you. They're going to do everything they can to love and serve. And, and, but there's no point. doesn't help anything. Right? Instead, let's consider the interests of others. Let's humbly consider others' needs as better priority, unified in our love and encouragement and devotion to one another, our devotion to the, to the mission and to upholding the values that bring us together. So my prayer and my request, my, my instruction as Paul instructed the church in Philippi, because of all you have experienced together in Christ, be of one mind and one purpose and one heart. Be humble, doing nothing out of pride or selfish ambition. Instead, consider others most important. Because that's, that's the mind that was in Christ. He humbled himself and took on the place. Of, sorry, he laid down his life for you. And he told us that there's no greater love than laying down your life. That we find our lives as we lay them down. And so love well. Work out your salvation as he works in you the ability to do this. And do nothing, rather do everything, without complaining or grumbling. Instead, look for a way to encourage and compliment and uplift. And God will bind us together, continue to bind us together, and I'll come back to a healthier, more beautiful and wonderful thing than this beautiful, wonderful, healthy thing that I'll step away from for just a little bit. I'm so thankful. I continue to echo the words Paul in chapter 1. Just, I'm so thankful for your partnership in the mission, for your partnership in the gospel, for your love for one another, and for those who walk through this door, those that you've not yet met, as you love and serve, as you connect and fill and overflow. May God guide us, bless us, and take us where he wants us, and produce in us who he made us to be. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for you. In awe of the comfort and compassion and encouragement and love we have experienced in you, the tender compassion and mercy that you have poured over us, 
that we are so undeserving of. But we recognize that we live worthy of those things as we are united and humbled together, serving one another, serving each one who walks through those doors, each one we meet. May we look for ways to, to lift others up, to put the interest of others above. And may we live our lives, not just in this place, but in our work and in our home, in, our, in, our, in, our, in all the places we go. Would we be known as those who do everything without complaining or grumbling? And would you work in us the desire and the will to, to work out our salvation according to your good purpose? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Enjoy a homemade cookie on your way out. It is a great joy to be with you. We look forward to being with you again next week. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. We'll see you soon.